Well, a very warm welcome to the latest edition of Generation, our podcast, podcast produced by Generation, which is the mission arm of Free Church of Scotland, where we speak to folk really from Scotland and all around the world about mission. And of course, mission famously is from everywhere to everywhere. And today I've got a colleague and a friend with me, David McPherson. David is the executive director of, and you have to excuse my Spanish operation, San Andres. David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, Yes, uh, thank you for the invitation. Okay, Operation San Andres or OSA is, you know, quite new to many of our listeners and viewers. Can you just describe what it is? Yeah, so OSA, let's just call it OSA, I think that's easier. So OSA is a, a charity, a Christian non-profit uh, that was founded about 15 years ago uh, by a Peruvian uh, doctor, but who is all of his professional life lived in the States and still does, Dr. Campos. Uh, so he had a burden for helping the poor, basically, to put it in its at its simplest level, and had certain means to do so. He and others uh, uh, of uh, his the church that he was part of, and so he came to Peru, as I say, nearly twenty years ago. Identified what at that time was one of the poorest parts of Lima, still is up to a point, and began a, a ministry of uh, I, I guess we could call it a diaconal ministry reaching out to uh, the children and the families of that uh, community. Okay, I, I read a really incredible thing that it was 1961 when he was a pupil at school, he wrote an essay called The Slum. Do you know that story? Yes, I do, yes. And it's interesting because the the, the kind of the inspiration behind that was Sam Will, uh, who was uh, a free church missionary in the school. So he, had, he was really mentoring, in a way, the senior pupils, trying to awaken in them um, a social Christian uh, conscience. Uh, largely, they would have been, the pupils would have been from middle class, some upper middle class families who had little exposure to, to the kind of poverty that uh, there was in Lima. So, yes, through Sam's encouragement, uh, some of the pupils were uh, given the opportunity to visit places like Coyique. It wasn't actually Coyique, but places like Coyique. And uh, what arose out of that was this essay that um, that Luis wrote, uh, where he revealed that uh, blossoming concern for uh, responding to those situations. Yes, I, I met Sam Will. I mean, some of the older listeners, those who are raised in the Free Church, will have known him. He was quite a character. He, I, I remember, he was he had a monocle. Uh, he had a a, quite a, a substantial beard, uh, a better one than you have, David. I have to say, but he—did you ever meet him? Uh, yes, yes, I did. Uh, and then, of course, in the congregation in Aberdeen, uh, his sister Ellen Will uh, is a long-standing member of the congregation. So there was a a reconnection in a way uh, because of that uh, connection. And isn't that a great illustration of how mission works? You, you know, you get a, a British missionary goes and teaches in a school in Lima and inspires a national who goes on to help his own people. Any views on that? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's, I guess, that's how mission works. That's how the church works. Um, and I think it does illustrate the importance of those personal relationships. I think if Sam had given 
Louise a book about the poor, uh, I can't imagine it would have had the same impact as uh, Louise seeing in Sam that uh, personal commitment and burden to reach out with Christ's love to people in those circumstances. So yeah, I think uh, I think it is a kind of snapshot of what hopefully is happening all the time, everywhere. Okay, was that a big change for you? Because most of your ministry has been church-based. You were um, uh, a minister in Peru, and then you came to Scotland for a few years, and, you know, ministry, congregational pastoring, and now you're, you know, working with a, a third sector, sector NGO. Was the change difficult? Um, it was it's certainly a big change, and it's probably the aspect of the change that I most wrestled with in terms of whether to take this on or not. Um, I don't. I never had any issues on, of theology or principle that I was abandoning my my ministry by doing this. That wasn't the issue. It's just the change uh, and whether I was suited to something that was so different. I suppose during my time in Peru, though, I was indeed pastor of the. the Presbyterian Church in Moyabamba, the, the nature or the breadth of the ministry of that congregation was such that I was involved in a lot of project-type activity, be it building projects or diaconal projects of one kind or another. So I guess that gave me a little bit of um, experience of some of what I'm involved in now. Also, the, the fundraising, the connecting with funders was something that I had some experience of during that previous spell in Peru. Yeah, I mean, I think you're a really good organiser. That's uh, someone that looks onto your ministry. You organise really well in Moyabamba and Bonacord. You oversaw, you know, quite dramatic change with the building project and a culture change. So, you know, I think organisation is one of your things. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the location uh, of the ministry? It's in a, a little sort of suburb of. Lima suburb is perhaps a little bit too posh, but can you outline uh, what the area is like? Yeah, so Goyike, where at the moment uh, all of the Ministry of Osa is, is uh, focused and concentrated, is a community of about 200,000 people on the northern outskirts of Lima. So basically, once you start heading out of Lima, you begin to hit the foothills of the Andes, uh, but the desert foothills of the Andes. So basically you're on the northern outskirts of Lima uh, in a, I guess, yeah, mountainous area, but desert hills. And I guess maybe 30 years ago, um, folks started um, populating that part of the, the city or what became part of the city. And that has continued uh, over the succeeding decades to this point where it is now. So basically, you know, 30 years ago, it would have been a shanty town. Today, the older parts of Koyike would no longer be shanty towns. Pretty much all of Koyike would still be poor, uh, but some parts considerably more poor than others. Uh, basically, the, a rule of thumb is the higher up the mountain you go, the poorer the people are and the newer the communities are. Um, so, yeah, that's more or less the... Um, where we're operating. Okay, so what sort of ministries is um, OSA engaged in? Right, so they're family-focused. So probably the core activity that OSA has been involved in over the years is work with kids. So there's a, a, a primary school kids program that operates in two shifts, morning and afternoon. And um, the 
all of these children, of course, are in public schools one end of the day, either in the morning or the afternoon. So the end of the day that they're not at school, they come to OSA. And what we try and do is give them not just help with homework, but alternative um, activities that focus on, on really formation of character and of um, uh, preparation for life. So there's art and there's music and there's uh, Christian education uh, that the kids are involved with and they're fed. So they have their lunchtime meal. So there's a nutrition element to that. As a result of that, we then made connections with obviously their parents and particularly the mothers, largely because the mothers tend to be more accessible than the fathers and uh, have, as a result of that, got involved in work with mothers in the area of domestic violence, seeking to prevent domestic violence, and also in the area of uh, income generation, which kind of is linked with the domestic violence, because part of the, the reason to give the mothers the capacity to have some independent means of income is that it gives them greater power to resist uh, abusive situations and indeed uh, have the, the way of, of actually walking away if necessary. So around that, there have been other things that have also been done over the years. Um, this past year has been unusual for, for obvious reasons. And so uh, we've had to reinvent ourselves in terms of these regular programs. But we've also introduced uh, an emergency support project, which has taken up quite a, a lot of, of my time and just at the time of the institution, uh, uh, which basically is around providing food to soup kitchens. Then one other thing to mention, which is important, um, is that out of the ministry of OSTA has arisen a local a Christian congregation uh, called Light of Hope. Uh, the Women for Mission Project very kindly supported uh, the, the work of that congregation or raise funds for the work of that congregation, funds that we'll be spending in the course of the next few months. Um, so that is it's kind of a strange relationship for me as a Presbyterian because it's kind of a, it's a little independent church, which is really part of OSA. And that kind of model is a little bit unusual uh, uh, for me to kind of get my head around, but that's, that's where it is at the moment. Okay, would it go so far to describe it as kind of church planting, but by a different model, you know, that, uh, you know, that's basically where it's going. And, you know, um, the Light of Hope is at its very early stages. Do you see it as, as having that potential as a, a more kind of robust church with preaching? Yes, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah I think you, you could you could describe it as a church plant. It is, it is a church plant. Um, by any definition, it's a church plant. I suppose the concern would be, and being very honest, is that given that it, it, it has this financial backing of a, of a charity that in the context is reasonably well resourced, uh, there is the danger that it could be very difficult for it to become the church, for it to become financially independent, because there's always the, the backup of, of OSA to provide the financial means required. So that's just a concern. I'm not saying that that you know, dooms the, the, the project. Um, one, of, one of the interesting things, actually, and on just following on in that line of questioning or, or that line of thought is one of the interesting providential outcomes of the pandemic is that as we've provided support to, well, now it's about 30 soup kitchens and shanty towns across Koyike, that, as you can imagine, has created a, a, a lot of goodwill towards the organization. And that is opening doors for other opportunities for ministry 
among them with the church. So tomorrow I will be going to Koyike. I'll be meeting up with the guy who's responsible for providing the, the food or the logistics for that. And then the two pastors, we've just taken on a new pastor. Uh, and we're going to be visiting three communities where we're looking to establish a foothold for the church work. Uh, so almost like satellite sites from the main mother church uh, that is currently functioning. Okay, before we go back and talk about church, I was really interested in the micro-enterprise work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right, well, at the moment, that is, you know, it's a very... Um, very small scale, I would say. So basically, it's it's been providing mothers with certain skills that could help them to generate income. So, for example, uh, baking, uh, making cakes, making pastries. Uh, so a number There's a of name, name of these pastries, isn't it? Um, is it Alf, Alfogios or something? The, the little cookies? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah I, I, I read about it. I don't know what the Spanish name for it is, just little distinctive cookies that they make. Yeah. Right, right. So, yeah, so, and, and as with, inevitably with these things, some mothers are more skilled than others. Some are more motivated than others. Some, their circumstances lend it themselves more than they do for others. So some have, have run with it, and this is providing them with a, a helpful income. I don't think anybody is at a stage where their, the totality of their income is being provided by this. But in many cases, just having that little extra or maybe a significant extra can be the difference between you know, abject poverty and, and getting by. Um, at the moment, we're exploring something on a slightly bigger scale that would involve you know, job creation um, in Koyike. Uh, but that's at, at a kind of explorative exploratory phase, but we'll see how that how that goes. Yeah, I, I also understand that the kids who live out there, I mean, I don't know how far it is from Lima city centre, but I'm, I'm told that the kids rarely go into the city centre. So can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between Koyiki and, you know, downtown Lima? Right, well, I suppose just at a practical level, Koyiki would be... Uh, to downtown Lima, it's, it's probably a two-hour bus journey uh, wow. to get there. Now, that's largely because of the traffic. Um, it's not probably, like if you had a clean run at it, you could probably do it in half an hour. Um, it's, I don't know, what will it be? Maybe 10 miles or something, 15 miles. So it's, it's a traffic issue. Um, but yeah, so even just the, you know, the bus fares there and back would be an issue if a family said, well, let's go for a... Uh, an outing, um, they probably wouldn't go all the way into the centre of Lima. Um, so yeah, I think it, it probably is the case, or, or not probably it is the case that lots of kids would their their life would revolve around Goyike. Um, and actually, one of the things we do with the kids is take them on outings, um, partly because it's a fun thing to do, but partly because it does broaden their understanding of you know, the, the city they are part of, the country they live in, and, and maybe opens their eyes to, to possibilities that they hadn't previously even contemplated. Yes, talk a little bit about the wealth disparity in Lima. I mean, you ministered in Aberdeen. It's, you know, it's a rich oil city, or at least it used to be when oil was a thing. 
and a really wealthy affluent area. Even in Lima, you know, I was reading this morning about the wall of shame, and that's quite common to, you know, build a wall between an affluent area and a not-so-affluent area. Uh, Lima itself is, you know, since the 1950s, has gone from 1 million to 10 million, typical of so many majority world cities. Um, do we... In, in Scotland, understand that gulf between the rich and the poor. Describe it to us. Um, I, I suppose the, the the bottom line, or one of the bottom lines, or one of the factors is, you know, in, in Peru, unlike in the UK, there's no social security net of any kind. So if you don't work, if you don't have an income, then you don't have any money. So in a situation like we were living at the moment where the, the city's been subject to fairly strict lockdowns over the past year. Um, those who are working in the informal economy, which is actually 70% of Peruvians work in the informal economy. They're not on, um, they're not formal employees. They don't pay tax. Um, the type of work they do will be work that they earn what they earn in the day they're working, or in some cases, maybe at the end of the week. Um, so if suddenly you're told you can't go out to work, uh, then you just don't have any income. Um, and so then you're reliant, because there's no social security safety net, you're reliant on family, on charity, uh, on crime or whatever you can put your hand to, to, to put, uh, put food on the table. Um, it's all, one, of, one of the striking impacts of of the pandemic is that Peru actually has been little by little over the last 30 years improving the situation in terms of poverty. So there's been a, a consistent reduction in, in poverty. Obviously, poverty is measured in different ways, but by the different measures, there's been a consistent reduction in poverty over the last 30 years. Now, that has taken a, a dramatic about turn in the last year. Uh, I was reading some statistics that from having got it down to about 20% of the population were deemed to be in poverty, uh, as of today, it's gone up to about a third of the population, something approaching 34%. That's millions of people who in the, in the past year have once again found themselves in a situation of poverty as defined by the measure that's being used. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Tell us how OSA is a distinctive Christian organization and how it really differs from a, a secular, you know, um, charity. Um, well, certainly what we try and do, uh, and I guess we're, we're never wholly successful. What we try and do is that everything we do from a, a Christian perspective, there is a, to use the kind of jargon, you know, holistic uh, manner of, of conducting ministry. So whether it's teaching the kids or whether it's dealing with matters of domestic violence, uh, whether it's distributing food to soup kitchens, uh, we're seeking to do that in a Christian way, not simply by, for example, distributing New Testaments along with the food, though we can do that. But even in terms of how, to give you a, a real concrete example, the guy who we have hired to be responsible for the logistics of the food distribution, um, probably maybe a third of his time is involved in conflict resolution. You know, when you're giving stuff away, that creates issues. There's 
issues of distrust, of uh, jealousy. Uh, so his job really is, or part of his, an important part of his job is counselling the people involved, encouraging them to forgive each other, to uh, reconcile, to work together. Uh, and it's really heartwarming for me to hear his stories of what he, he goes to these places and that's what he's doing. And then what he does, and this is partly to do with his personality and his character, but then he'll have them all together and says, right, we're going to pray. <laughs> and then he'll tell them about Jesus. <laughs> and you'll assure me that many of them have uh, prayed the prayer of faith. And being a Scottish cynic, I kind of think, yeah, right. But um, but no, it is heartwarming to see how something as practical and as you know seemingly just uh, transactional as handing over food can be performed in a God-glorifying Christian manner. Okay, let's, let's talk about the wider context of evangelicalism in Peru. Very often, you know, if you take the whole South American context, the term evangelical is, is not a great word. It's politicized. It's linked very much, perhaps, with prosperity teaching. Is, is that a case in Peru, or is evangelical a little bit of a better brand? Um, I think it's 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 a brand that has been devalued um, over the years. So I, even in my lifetime, I would say, like even say thirty years ago, when I went back to Peru as an adult, um, I think there was a general view among the population that to be an evangelical was a good thing in the sense that if you were an evangelical, you were largely honest, hardworking, reliable, um, you didn't get drunk. And so people would, you know, even folk employers would think, oh, well, it would be good to have an evangelical uh, because of those character traits or virtues or, or what have you. Um, I think with the passage of time, the, 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 the brand has been devalued, not necessarily because many evangelicals don't, uh, aren't like that anymore, but there's just been a whole, yes, this whole mix of, of, of these you know, prosperity teaching, evangelical involvement in politics, and maybe, what could we say, very highly publicized falls from grace of uh, big evangelical stars, uh, and so on and so forth. So certainly, I would say the brand has been devalued. Uh, that said, I think there's still, there's still, I would say, uh, uh, I think one positive would remain is that among the evangelical community, there would still be a, a sense of solidarity among each other, even, even the different brands or denominations. If you're an evangelical, then you're my brother. Um, and so there is a willingness, certainly in some places, to, to work together on that basis. You know, that's what joins us. We are evangelicals. Yeah. What would the boundary markers of evangelicalism be? Would they be, you know, respect for the infallibility of the Bible, the preaching of the gospel, the need to be born again, uh, the belief in the fundamentals, virgin birth, resurrection? Um, yes, I think there would certainly be those uh, doctrinal um, fundamentals that would be shared. And by those who would identify themselves as, as evangelicals. Um, in, this would vary even in certain parts of the country and certainly vary from denomina denomination to denomination, but there would be certain lifestyle uh, characteristics that some would consider to be essential to an evangelical identity, but there, you know, not all would, would share that view. But where there's, a, where there's a big difference is 
is how those who are not evangelicals perceive or uh, identify evangelicals. So for, for most people in Peru who aren't evangelicals, they would put any Christian uh, church of any description that's not Catholic is evangelical. So that would include Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and sects of one kind or another. Just the fact that they have some kind of Christian identity and they're not Catholic, then they're evangelical. Yeah. Obviously, would that's you not ever, evangelical view of it. Yeah. Would you ever self-describe as Presbyterian? I mean, would that, would that be helpful or would that be irrelevant? Um, again, that would be, so when I was at the pastor in Moyabamba, I, I would, uh, but Moyabamba is a very unusual place because probably it's almost unique in being a significant city where the Presbyterian church is the biggest and, and most significant and most well-known. And that simply wouldn't be the case in 99% of Peru. So it's a very unusual situation. So there I could identify as Presbyterian and people would know what I was talking about. They would, well, they would know that I was talking about that one congregation in Moyabamba. They wouldn't have a broader concept of the, the term. Uh, in Lima, you know, most people wouldn't have the faintest idea of what you were talking about if you identified as Presbyterian. Within Christian circles or within evangelical circles, uh, possibly yes, but uh, out with them, it would be a meaningless um, description. Okay, and, and a whole proof, would you say the church was growing? Uh, is it growing? Is it plateaued? Is it declining? And also, is there a difference between rural and urban? Um. To be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not too up on, say, more recent statistics, say, in the last five years or so. I think certainly until, you know, five years ago, there, there, was a, there had been a, a growth over probably three or four decades and an accelerating growth, certainly through the, the 90s and the noughties. Um, my, my impression, and this is, it's not more than an impression, it's not grounded in, in statistics or or research is that there's probably been a a, a, set, a certain plateauing of the of the growth of evangelical churches, and uh, that's the impression I have. And um, if there's any difference between rural and, and urban, possibly there was certainly certain certainly there's certain parts of Peru, certain regions of Peru where the evangelical presence is significantly higher than in others. And uh, so the jungle part, for example, where Moyabamba is and and beyond. Uh, has a more a significantly higher proportion of folk who would identify as evangelical than than Lima or than other parts of the country. Um, so it's it's quite a mixed picture, I guess, across the country. Yeah, I mean, you you're bilingual, you're bicultural. You know, home for you is Scotland, home for you is Peru. You just really literally, you know, go from one to the other at ease. What would you say that the elements are that you miss most about Scotland when you're in Peru? And when you're in Peru, what do you miss most about Scotland? Um, that, that's interesting because it's probably, the, the answer I would give to that question today is probably very different to the, the answer I would have given even a year ago. Um, I think if I start in the, the second half of your question, because it has to do a little bit with why we came back at all. Um, so I missed Peru uh, when I was in Scotland. I was happy in Scotland, but I did miss Peru. Um, I had a, an idea, and this is probably very kind of a bit of kind of therapy going on here, but I kind of had this idea or this notion that I was more useful in Peru 
than I was in Scotland. Now, that's maybe very subjective, but I had this sense that I was. Um, I also, the, the, the work in Moyabamba was so broad in its scope. It was, you know, there was an excitement to that and being involved in lots of different things. Um, so I, I kind of hankered for that. Um, of course, life moves on. And, you know, when you do come back, you discover that maybe it wasn't what you'd imagined. Not that I'm, I've got any regrets, but, you know, I'm just being honest in terms of things aren't always what you what you imagine, even familiar places. Um, that in terms of from Peru looking to, uh, from Scotland to Peru, now kind of thinking about Scotland, well, obviously one thing now that's a very real issue um, is family. You know, you do feel the, the distance and COVID obviously has multiplied that. Um, technology mitigates it somewhat, but um, I was just um, speaking to Martha <clears throat> the other day and at the beginning of the year and noticed or came realized that it'd been over a year since I'd seen my, our youngest son, just because of the, even though we were back in Scotland in the summer, he wasn't, for again, for COVID-related reasons. So to have been in a situation where, you know, he was living at home and probably hadn't ever been more than two weeks not seeing him to then going for a whole year, that wasn't, I didn't sign up for that, as it were. So that's kind of, um, you kind of miss that being, not just being so far away, but almost also knowing that even if you wanted to or needed to go, that wouldn't be as a straightforward thing to do. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, it's there's a safety and a security uh, about Scotland that's nice, you know, and I, I look forward to going back to a place that's more stable and uh, more suited to my, to my um, age. <laughs> I think Peru is great for a 20 year old, 30 year old, but maybe once you're 50 or 60, uh, Scotland's <laughs> more suitable. Yeah. Uh, we've lost the signal a little bit, but I can still hear you. I've got a great image there of you in full flight preaching at General, or you're at General Assembly or something. Um, how's that, as you back again? Can you tell us how Peru's coping with COVID? I mean, we heard uh, a few weeks ago that it was one of the worst places in the world. Are you coming out of it now? Um, I Peru has, has coped very badly with COVID. Uh, and with that, I'm not, I don't know the reason for that. You know, obviously, you know, I could say the government's done an appalling job and maybe it has. COVID is such a complex beast that sometimes it's difficult to know if, uh, you know, the, the results are because of bad management or just because, you know, you're unlucky or <laughs> what it is. But the, the, the reality is that Peru has had a, an appalling experience of COVID in terms of the number of deaths, in terms of the economic impact, it's been devastating. Uh, things were improving, and certainly in terms of the infection rates and deaths in this, the final quarter of last year, uh, September, October, November, we're, we're, we're looking good. But then in January we and February, we had a big spike, uh, and the excess deaths per day uh, are now or were exceeding what they were at the worst point in, in July, August. It seems to have plateaued again. Um, then in terms of other issues with COVID, like obviously one of the big success stories in the UK uh, is the vaccination uh, rates and the rollout of the vaccines. Like in Peru, it's only just started. So there's been, I think we've got a million doses. Like, so that's what, we've got 30 million people. So you'd need at least 60 million. We've got 1 million, uh, which are being 
uh, directed to health workers, which is perfectly reasonable. But at the moment, folks like myself, we have absolute uh, have no notion of of when we might have access to a vaccine. Um, you know, even looking towards the end of the year, you know, we might, but there's no no way of knowing when that might happen. So that's obviously a big problem. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, COVID has been pretty devastating uh, for Peru, and uh, we'll see how it recovers. Yeah, in terms of your, your ministry there, can you tell me what makes a great day? I mean, a day when you feel, wow, it is great to be awesome. And also, what are the challenges? What makes it a bad day for you? Mm-hmm. I think probably the most satisfying days, the days when I would, you know, at the end of the day, say that was a good day, probably are when I'm actually out um in Koyike, going up into the hills, and maybe just, maybe when I don't actually have to, like I, I'm not required to say distribute the food, but sometimes like tomorrow I'm going and I'll, I'll, I'll be involved in that. Um, and you're kind of at the cold face, you're speaking to people, you're seeing with your own eyes what, what is being achieved and you know how grateful people are. Uh, and so that's satisfying, that's encouraging. And you you begin to, to see the opportunities uh, in, a, in a way that, is more real than when you're sitting at your desk thinking what they might be. Um, so I, I would say that's a good day. Um, the bad days, I guess, are the, the the less good days or the bad days The are just when you're kind of stuck in, you know, because of, of COVID, you're maybe stuck in your flat and you're trying to do stuff on the computer and you're thinking, oh, you know, this isn't much fun. <laughs> but, you know, you're going, you know, you're doing what you have to do um, and kind of getting through yeah. Okay. So we're here in Scotland. We're coming to the end of, of our chat here. But can you ask us if you wanted folk to really pray for the situation in Koyiki and Osa, yourself and Martha, what would be maybe the, the three big things that you would say, Lord, just help us with this thing? Help us mm-hmm. to get over the hill here. Um, one thing that is maybe, hopefully, it's. it's it doesn't sound very memorable, but I think it's important. One thing would be we are currently really having a, uh, a careful look at who we are and what we do. Uh, that was probably, I think that's always important for an organization to do that. I think COVID has given us a, almost an opportunity to do so in a more urgent way. And we need to kind of ask the right questions and get the right answers so we know how to move forward. And um, as I say, that sounds all very kind of strategic and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff that can be very off-putting, but uh, prayer that we would ask the right questions and get the right answers. Um, a second thing would be that we would grasp the opportunities that are presenting themselves through the work of the Emergency Relief Project, so that we would identify well what communities we can try and establish a presence in. I think we want to start with work with the kids, so have kids clubs in these uh, shanty towns, and then through that reach the families and hopefully set up uh, Sunday services in these uh, locations. And uh, so that pray that that would go well, that the two pastors, Tito and Jorge, who's just come on board, would um, would do a great job together with the other folks in the church. And uh, that would be a second thing. Um, what would be a third thing? Uh, I guess the third thing, we might just pray for ourselves, for me and Martha, in terms of uh, facing the challenges of being far from I guess I, I would say at, at one level far from home, but in other in other ways at home. Um, 
and direction as to the, the longer term future. Great to talk to you, David. I mean, we wish you like of Hope Church uh, every blessing as it, as it grows and develops. The various, you know, soup kitchens, education work, uh, you know, transforming families. It really is a, a tremendous work. We'll be putting the URL to OSA at the bottom of our, you know, generation thing here. <clears throat> so folk will be able to go on the website. It's a great website, really informative. You know, be, be assured of interest and prayers of the folk here in Scotland. We do miss you, but it's great to see you. And we hope that you'll be uniting with your family again. Uh, podcast folk again thank you for joining us today this is I think our third video as well as audio so whether you're on video or audio it's been great to be with you please tune in again next week when we hope to talk again to another engaging and interesting speaker as we're engaging the work of mission so thank you and have a great day